You know, normally at communion, we talk about how the bread represents Christ's broken body. But in these unprecedented times, I guess the styrofoam can represent Christ's broken body as well. If you took communion at home, you may have had better bread than we just had. We tried some new communion bread, but we'll make it work. Well, again, good morning. Thanks for joining us at Prairie View Christian Church, whether you're here in the room or whether you're watching on Facebook Live. We're glad that you're participating on Sunday, June 14th. Now, we ended last week's sermon in 1 Kings 18 with the one true God's resounding victory over the false gods, Baal and Asherah, their rebellious prophets, and the corrupt King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. The prophet Elijah exposed these so-called gods as frauds. The one true God made his power obvious by sending fire from heaven. The watching Israelites repented of their sin and worshipped, and God ended the devastating drought that he had sent some three years earlier. So all in all, that sounds like a pretty productive day for the prophet Elijah. This seems like a high point for him. He must feel like he's on top of the world. But life comes at you fast. Things change. And we see a very different Elijah today in 1 Kings 19 than we saw last week in 1 Kings 18. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings 19. We encourage you to follow along both here and at home. But before we do any reading, we'll pray. Father, again, thank you for today. Thank you for this time that we have together. We've said it before, even before uh, the coronavirus came, even before the world got turned upside down. In this world of uncertainty and unpredictability, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify you that you do not change. That even though everything around us changes, you remain the same. You are strong. You are good. You are great. You are glorious, even when so many other things can't be trusted in and can't be relied upon. So, Lord, we thank you that even on Sunday mornings like today and like these past few weeks, when our Sunday morning service is different, we're still worshiping you. Whether the communion bread is great or bad, whether the order of service makes sense or feels a little bit discombobulated on Sunday morning, we worship you. And we're just grateful that we have that privilege to worship you today. Even when things are different, whether we're sitting in this room socially distanced or whether we're sitting at home in front of a computer, we're just grateful that we have the privilege and the honor of worshiping you and calling you our Father. And so, Father, we love you. We do worship you. We do honor you. We do praise you. We come into your presence with confidence because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And we thank you for the word that you've given us that we get to read today. Again, we ask this all in Christ's name. We praise you. Amen. We'll start in 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, By this time tomorrow. That's a very Old Testament way of saying, I'm going to kill you. Verse 3. Then Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, 
which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. So even after she and her false gods have been embarrassed, Queen Jezebel of Israel is just as evil, just as stubborn, just as vicious as ever. She makes her plans to kill Elijah known publicly, not least to Elijah himself. As a result, Elijah runs for his life. The city of Beersheba was about as far south as you could go at that time without leaving Israel entirely. So in short, Elijah wants no part of Jezebel. The bold, confident, and even brash prophet of 1 Kings 18 has been reduced to a frightened, lonely, dejected fugitive in 1 Kings 19. You know, we often read stories about people like Elijah in the Bible, and we picture them as giants of the faith. We attribute an almost mythical, a heroic-type status to them that normal old believers like us could not possibly relate to. And while some of the more recognizable people from the Bible really did do some incredible things, they were still human. As one old saying puts it, even the best of men are men at best. We see that in Elijah's case here. This passage reminds us that while he may have been a fiery and charismatic prophet, Elijah was still a man. A man with the same sorts of weaknesses, faults, and pains that you and I often experience. One commentator describes Elijah in this passage as exhibiting the symptoms of manic depression, wishing for death, loss of appetite, and inability to manage, and excessive self-pity. One of the New Testament passages that mentions Elijah is James chapter 5, starting in verse 16. We read there. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. We often read that passage from James and think about the prayer part, how Elijah was this incredible prayer warrior, and we could never match up to the kind of prayer that Elijah offered. But we often ignore that phrase at the beginning of the passage. James says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. A man with a nature like ours. He struggled in many of the ways that you and I do. He was weak in many of the ways that you and I are. We often picture biblical figures as legends, heroes, myths, titans. But in this passage, we see Elijah, the servant of God, discouraged, moody, insecure. How quickly times have changed for this once courageous 
prophet. The man we read about in 1 Kings 19 is a shell of what he was in 1 Kings 18. And all it took was a threat from Jezebel. Elijah even goes so far as asking God that he might die. Job and Jeremiah did the same thing, though arguably under more difficult circumstances than Elijah. Again, we see here that Elijah was very much a man with a nature like ours. So have you ever felt like Elijah, sulking under that broom tree all by himself? Have you ever felt so burdened by fear, doubt, anxiety, loneliness, and suffering that you honestly wish God would just put you out of your misery right now? As we see in Elijah's case, this could come on suddenly, on the heels of some great success, or even after we've watched God do something wonderful. Or it could come on slowly, in the form of gradual burnout, just getting worn out. Well, in the following verses, God does several things for this downtrodden prophet. And these lessons might also be helpful to us when we're discouraged in our own service to God as well. So we pick up in 1 Kings 19, second half of verse 5. We read there. And behold, an angel touched Elijah and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Oreb, the mount of God. The first, probably most simple lesson for Elijah and for us is that God cares for his discouraged servants. God cares for his discouraged servants. God does not give Elijah a stern rebuke, though there may be times when we do need that. God does not use Elijah up until he's reached his breaking point. Leave him under that broom tree and then go find someone else. God doesn't cast Elijah aside like a wet rag that he already twisted all the water out of. And of course, God does not grant Elijah's request that he be put out of his misery. God meets Elijah's needs. In this moment of deep vulnerability, God provides Elijah with the strength that he lacks in and of himself. God gets this sluggish prophet back on his feet, traveling again. Those are both steps in the right direction. But Elijah's healing is not yet complete. But he does know that God cares for him. And we can know that God cares for us as well. Picking up in verse 9. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So Elijah trudges on to Mount Oreb and takes up shelter in a cave. But Elijah is not the first biblical figure to hide out on that mountain. You may recognize Mount Oreb more popularly as Mount Sinai. Moses once walked on that same mountain. It's where he communed with God, received the Ten Commandments. And later, Moses took shelter in one of those very same caves when he was worn down by the mission that God had given him. And God met him on that mountain. In his time of weakness, frustration, and doubt, Moses got a brief taste of God's glorious presence in Exodus 33. And Elijah gets his own in the passage we just read. But God does not make his power known to Elijah in 1 Kings 19 the same way he did in 1 Kings 18. When fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice that he had set up and everyone saw it and no one could deny it. Yeah, there's a fierce wind, but God's not there. Yes, there is a jolting earthquake, but God's not there. And yes, there's more fire, but God's not there either. God isn't present in the obvious, the awe-inducing, the spectacular signs. He meets Elijah with a whisper. Some translations say a thin silence. God is with Elijah in his lowest, darkest moment. 
God hears his cries, sees his pains, and knows his sorrow. Twice, God asks a question that he already knows the answer to. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And twice, God allows Elijah to pour out his soul. So we've already learned that God cares for his discouraged servants. And here we learn a little bit more. Often when we struggle through our own times of anxiety, worry, and doubt, we want or we expect God to show up with some massive gesture to make his presence known. And while he's at it, maybe even solve our problems for us. We want the clear answer. We want the easy solution. We want the message in the clouds. We want the obvious sign. We want the overwhelming proof of God's presence. We want the wind. We want the earthquake. We want the fire. But sometimes, perhaps more often than not, we don't get those things. Instead, we get the low whisper. The thin silence. God makes his care for us and his presence with us known in small, unassuming, even unremarkable ways. A short prayer with a friend. A simple card from a brother or sister in Christ. A tiny blessing that you might normally take for granted. The wind might not blow. The earth might not shake. And you might not feel any heat. But that doesn't mean that God isn't present with you. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care for you and your discouragement. Additionally, we're reminded that God listens to the cries of his weary servants. We don't have to pretend that everything is fine. We don't have to put on a happy face before we express ourselves to God. We don't have to wonder about whether or not God hears us. He does. And more than that, he can handle our complaints. He can handle our worries and he can handle our doubts. God patiently, kindly, gently listens to Elijah as he expresses what seems to be his rehearsed complaints. He listens to Elijah as he broods. More than once, God allows Elijah to whine and moan and gripe. And, you know, it's good to know that God does this because we, too, have our moments of whining and moaning and griping. Don't we? But then even after all this, after God has allowed Elijah to rest, after he's given him food and drink, after he's strengthened him for his journey, after he's made his presence known to him, after he's listened to his complaints, even after all of this, Elijah is still sulking. In verses 10 and 14, he issues the exact same grievance Word for word. Grievances that may even be over-exaggerated. Chapter 18 briefly mentions that there are other faithful prophets of God in Israel. They had just gone into hiding. So maybe Elijah isn't as alone as he thinks he is. So God patiently listens to Elijah's complaints, but at the same time, he's not going to let him mope forever. 
So what does God do next to get Elijah back on his feet? Well, he gives him a new task. He gives him something to do. He gives Elijah that command to anoint the next king of Syria, anoint the next king of Israel, anoint the prophet who will replace him. God even gives Elijah a preview of what will happen in the future with regard to these three men. And then at the end, he tacks on that glimmer of hope in verse 18. That while Elijah may feel like the only person in Israel who loves God, there are others out there. There are 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. Now that brings us to two more lessons. When servants of God are discouraged, one thing that might help us get back on our feet is to remember our mission. Remember our calling. Remember who we are. God reminds Elijah of who he is, a prophet, by treating him like a prophet. He gives him prophet things to do. He tells Elijah to get back to work. Anoint kings. Call a prophet to follow in your footsteps. You're a prophet, Elijah, so act like one. And sometimes when we're discouraged in our own service to God, whether it's because a friend resists our attempts to share the gospel with them, because the neighbor we've been called to love isn't particularly lovable, because the child that we've been tasked with raising in the discipline and instruction of the Lord is rejecting the Lord, or because the church we've been called to serve isn't growing the way we hoped it would. Sometimes we simply need to be reminded of who we are. We need to be reminded of what our mission is. And we need to get back to work. Don't worry about the results. You know who you are. So act like it. Be a missionary. Be a good neighbor. Be a godly parent. Be a faithful servant. Be a son and daughter of God. That's who you are. So do it. And let God take care of the rest. And as for that bizarre prophecy at the end about the kings and who will put who to death. There's even a lesson for God's discouraged servants there. And that's to simply remember God's sovereignty. Elijah doesn't need to question whether or not the work that he's doing matters. He doesn't need to worry about the return on investment or lack thereof. God is sovereign over history. He knows who the next kings will be. He knows where they are. He knows how those kings will die. And because God is sovereign, Elijah does not need to fear that his work for the Lord is in vain. God knows what the future holds. God knows what he's doing. And though Elijah may not even see it in his lifetime, his work will eventually bear fruit. Elijah may feel like the only one who loves God right now, but there will be more out there. Now, these are good lessons for us, and they're good lessons for Elijah. But I couldn't help but think of two other biblical figures when reading 1 Kings 19 this past week. The first one was the Apostle Paul. 
Paul had his own times of discouragement and suffering in his service to God. In fact, they were just as bad, if not worse, than Elijah's. But God used him, and God sustained him through it all. In Romans 11, Paul actually quotes 1 Kings 19, verse 18. In Paul's context, he uses it to argue that while most of his fellow Jews have abandoned God and rejected Jesus, some will believe. There are 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. And that gives Paul reason to trust in God's faithfulness. That gives Paul reason to continue his ministry, even when so many are rejecting it. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul sounds a bit like the despondent Elijah as he complains about his own hardships, specifically a troublesome, metaphorical thorn in his side that God gave him. But in that passage, God gently, patiently, kindly reminds Paul that his power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. God's power was made perfect in Elijah's weakness. And God's power is made perfect in your weakness and my weakness. So when I read this part of Elijah's story, I think about Paul. But I also think about Jesus. Specifically, I think about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was greatly distressed and troubled, where his soul was very sorrowful even to death, kind of like Elijah under that broom tree. And while Elijah may have been a little bit overdramatic in his complaints, Jesus was not. He had every reason to be greatly distressed and troubled. Because the cross loomed in the distance. But in that moment, God the Father cared for his son. He strengthened Jesus for the journey ahead. He was present with him in that prayer. He listened as Jesus expressed his sorrow. He reminded Jesus of his mission and his calling to go to the cross on our behalf. To take that cup. And Jesus perfectly obeyed. Jesus knew the Father would deliver him. Jesus knew his work would not be in vain. Because he and the Father are one. It's good news that God cares for his weary servants. Because we often feel like weary servants. It's good news that he strengthens us. Makes his presence known to us. Listens to our sorrows. Reminds us of our mission. And gently puts us back on our feet when we fall. It was good news for Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And it's good news for us today as we serve God in all the ways he's called us. In our homes, our neighborhoods, our work, our schools, and this church. But we find our true hope in remembering how the perfect servant of God, Jesus Christ, faithfully served the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit even as his soul was greatly troubled, even as he was discouraged. So when we get discouraged in our service to God, may we remember these lessons. May we remember how God cared for Elijah and cares for us. May we remember his presence with us, even in the smallest ways. May we remember our mission. May we remember his sovereignty. 
But above all, may we remember Christ, the perfect servant of God who fulfilled his mission on our behalf. May we remember him at all times, but especially when we are discouraged servants. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for 1 Kings 19. Thank you for this reminder that even the biblical figures that we lionize and look up to and admire, they were human. That's good for us to know. It's good for us to know that these people we often treat as heroes really aren't heroes in the fullest sense of the word. They're people like us. They're people who struggle and doubt and fear and get discouraged the same way we do. And so, Lord, may we know that you care for us, know how you care for us, know how you watch over us in our own times of discouragement. That even when we feel alone, even when we feel dejected, even when we wish that you would just put us out of our misery, you are present with us, you care for us, you see us, you hear us, and our work for you is not in vain. And thank you most of all for Christ. We keep our eyes on him at all times, but especially when we're discouraged, especially when we're frustrated and scared and lonely. We fix our eyes on Christ, knowing that our work for you is not in vain because his work for you was not in vain. Thank you that we can serve you joyfully and faithfully, even when times are hard, knowing that it is not pointless because Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose, and Christ will return. Thank you for the privilege of being your servants. Thank you for the privilege of being your sons and daughters even when times are hard. We love you. We worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name.